0: Welcome to episode 14 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where me and Clayton go over the next week's readings in our Read the Bible in a Year plan, answer your questions and talk about the things that struck us or were interesting uh, from the text. So here we go. A question that I had and as I was reading, rereading uh, Exodus was, so we talked about you know the 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 last half of Exodus, or really the last quarter of it, is almost entirely given over to the tabernacle's construction, and the details for that, which are important, but I think can be difficult. You know, it's just not how we would have written the Bible, which is good because we didn't. And we had encouraged everybody that as you're reading those things, to sort of to really try and like imagine, you know, what the tabernacle would have looked like, because it really does give us, you know. Some pretty fine detail just about what the stuff was made out of and everything else, and then we had what somebody had just commented, you know, that it was a gorgeous thing. And anyway, so then I was reading over it again, and and maybe I just misunderstood, but like so, it's the the tent itself is made out of these this multicolored fabric and, mm-hmm. and cloth of gold and everything, but then it's covered by like red goat leather, which is then covered by another kind of skin covering that like in some translations is like wild like dolphin dugong seals probably was not a marine animal but anyway (laughs) whatever two layers of a of a skin covering Mm -hmm. and so then it just struck me that like so if you're an israelite standing outside looking at it you won't see the finery you'll just see the leather coverings of the tent And so I wondered if there's a significance to that beyond just they wanted to cover it so that the finery wouldn't get torn up by the wilderness. But like, is there some, I don't know, like I just thought, is there some clue or some kind of a a pointer there of like that God's glory incarnated is like hidden? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if I was reading too much into it. But it just made me think about when, you know, the gospel of John starts, you know, he tabernacled among us and we've beheld his glory. But at the same time, he talks about that his own people, you know, didn't rejected him because he didn't look like what they thought he was supposed to. I don't know. It just, those kind of connections lit up in my brain. I was just like, huh, I feel like a church father would have preached a sermon about that. But that doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that that's present in Exodus. <laughs> mm, yes. So anyway, I just didn't know if you had a thought about that. I mean, I'm springing it on you, but it just was something I was thinking about this morning.
1: So I have a couple of thoughts right offhand. So the setting up and tearing down of the tabernacle would have been a whole deal, Mm -hmm. right? And I imagine the, I mean, the curtains go on first. Right. And it would be this beautiful moment of like a representation of the heavenly dwelling, Mm -hmm. then being covered by stuff, right? Leather and then skin and i don't know that the the coverings would have been perfect or airtight or you know i don't know that we're supposed to read them as though they're that would be a giant amount of leather to maintain in one piece i mean that's
0: what it says
1: well sure but <laughs> i i imagine it's not strictly solid or else oh, uh, there could be there could be serious problems i think with that amount of a solid piece of leather having said that um, there's something about the the when you talk about the the incarnation of or you know incarnating God's glory that there's something hidden. I think about every time they set it up, they go through that process, right? Here's the heavenly dwelling, and now we are covering it over
0: mm-hmm. and, and with I, skin, I,
1: right? That's that is. That's <laughs> I don't know. I just you know, I just was like, huh? Uh, hmm. I imagine yeah. there's something in the incarnation there. Um, I don't know that any Israelite could have. And th- that's, this is not what you were saying. I don't think anybody f- walking around following the tabernacle or setting it up could have been like, you know, I wonder what it would be like <laughs> if, if a human actually right. was the, right. but uh, yeah, that's very neat. I'd not, I'd not had that thought. Um, and also then the way that it looks from the outside and the inside, you know, yeah. the, the, I mean, I imagine that that would have been just a shocking difference, um, of not plain, I think it still would have probably been just startling to see from the outside, but the the to then go into the inside and see the beautiful colors of fabric and so on would have been mm-hmm. a shocking uh, a turn. You would have felt like you stepped into a different world.
0: Mm-hmm. And the gold, like I don't think I fully appreciated that, like they had, you know, th- and it describes this like they hammered out sheets of gold and then cut it for to make wire, like a th- gold thread that was then woven into all of it. It's like the tent itself would have sparkled you know in the, in the light of the lamp and i just had never really you know connected that and
1: the last half of the book of joshua is primarily taken up with the allotment of land to the different tribes of the israelites there are bits of narratives interspersed throughout such as caleb's speech and proclamation of yahweh's provision but mostly it's about finding out which family is going to live where while these chapters are difficult reading i want to encourage you to imagine if you can the way it would have felt to be an ancient Israelite reading them. For hundreds of years, Israelites would have been able to find their family name in this ancient document and know that they personally were included in the answering of Yahweh's promise to Abraham. Because that's what these chapters represent, the fulfillment of the promise of a people and the fulfillment of the promise of a land. Imagine, dear listener, what it would be like to find your name in this story and the blessing and promise that it would hold for you. Then the book of Joshua concludes with some words from Joshua himself. He reiterates the commands of Deuteronomy, assuring the people that they will receive blessings if they obey Yahweh and curses if they do not. And sadly, Joshua seems pretty pessimistic about Israel's obedience. And this flows smoothly into the book of Judges where Joshua is proved to be right. The events of the book of Judges most likely take place from about 1400 to about 1000 B.C. And traditionally, the authorship of the book is attributed to Samuel, who took sources that were around and compiled them prophetically. The book of Judges is called that because of the characters it centers around, a series of leaders in Israel called and empowered by Yahweh to protect or free Yahweh's people from oppression. These are not Judges as we think of Judges today, These are more like people empowered to carry out the judgment of Yahweh. The only exception to this is Deborah, who we do see fulfilling something like a contemporary judge's role. Now there are a few things that I want you to keep in mind as we go forward into Judges together. First of all, prepare yourself, because Judges is the most graphically violent book of the Bible. Thumbs and big toes will be removed, swords will be thrust into bellies, tent pegs into heads, people will be mashed and crushed and dismembered. Remember that God's word is not always easy to read and just, well, be warned. Secondly, a careful reading of Judges is going to confuse you if you're expecting everything to be laid out chronologically. It does not appear that Samuel intended things to be read strictly chronologically. Joshua, for example, is dead in chapter 1 and then is dismissing people from a meeting in chapter 2. Shamgar comes quite a bit before Deborah, but then is said to be around at the same time as her. So, as you read Judges, remember that it is ordered the way it is for a reason. And thirdly, Judges has a special relationship with the previous two books of the Bible. It dovetails with Joshua and is almost a mirrored reflection of it. Although, instead of obedience and success, Yahweh's people are met over and over again with failures that they've brought on themselves. And Judges needs to be read through the lens of Deuteronomy. You remember, of course, all those promises of blessings and curses depending on Israel's obedience. Well, we see them come to fruition here. There is a cycle that happens in the book of Judges several times. The people disobey. Yahweh punishes them. The people repent. Yahweh gives them salvation or a savior delivers them. And then there is peace. And then, in the midst of peace, the people disobey, and on and on and on the cycle goes. And so in the beginning of the book, we get this story of how the southern Israelite nations, Judah Judah and Simeon and Benjamin, are obedient and clear out the peoples in their lands completely. And the rest do not, and there are consequences. The people are led into the worship of some of the Canaanite deities like Baal and Ashtoreth and Asherah, thus starting the cycle that we mentioned a moment ago. And each time a judge is called, and each time Yahweh uses them to rescue his people. I hope you're ready, because
0: Judges is a wild ride. So you mentioned that Judges is not strictly chronological. Mm-hmm. Do you suppose, and this might be a false distinction that I'm just mistaken about in my mind, but like, do you suppose we should read that as like that the authors are just arranging things according to a different sort of storytelling... Way Mm -hmm. Or just that ancient people just didn't... They didn't prioritize strict linear history like we do. Or both.
1: Yeah, I would say both. They didn't prioritize strict linear history like we do. They did prioritize meaning. Hmm. And so I think that stories are put where they are in Judges, specifically. Um, My guess is because as the author was... He had the, the stories he was going to put together. And he arranged them... Um, to best tell this story of Israel, Israel's cycle of ob- disobedience on through repentance, on through deliverance, on to peace. And so it reads in a way that that cycle just happens cleanly again mm-hmm. and again. Even though some of these judges were around at the same time, we read them very independently mm-hmm. in the cycles connected to them. Right. And so if it was Samuel, um, and I don't see, I mean, we don't have proof of that. We also don't have real good reason to doubt it that organized these... these um, different documents into one work might, um, I mean, what we know of Samuel, it would not surprise me what at all that he was um, telling a story about Israel's heart and the, the need for genuine repentance and covenant loyalty, which then comes to fruition in many ways in the works that Samuel is himself is part of.
0: Um, so bouncing back to Joshua. So we talked about last week that the first half and so, chapter twelve is sort of the hinge chapter where it lists the the conquered kings and the and the cities or strongholds, uh, and then it gets into the the allotments, literally, because yeah. it's decided by lot, the allotments uh-huh. of the tribal territories. And I'm curious for your thoughts on like the the benefit. Well, you know, even in asking that question, one of the things I'm hope that, I, that I'm hoping for for myself and for the whole church, <laughs> as, as many of us are trying to read the Bible, is a, and we've talked about this many times on the podcast, like a retooling of the questions we're asking or even the assumptions we make about why we read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so to ask the question, which I was about to ask, <laughs> what benefit is there for us uh-huh. in reading the tribal territory allotments? It's like, well, there's a lot... I'm assuming that the Bible's about me,
1: uh-huh.
0: and the Bible <laughs> it should answer my needs and questions. It is not, and it shouldn't necessarily, or it shouldn't directly. Right. So let me, maybe, let me reframe, let me mm. reframe that question. Why did our family of faith preserve this record for us?
1: I don't know if there's a better chapter of the Bible that, or chapter section of the Bible, the more exhaustively, um, details the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Hmm. So we get those in several places before, you know, when we get lists of families in earlier books, that is the fulfillment of the, the promise of a people, um, here. And, and then at the beginning of Joshua, we have the, the fulfillment of the promise of land. Here those two are coming together. The covenant that Yahweh has made with Abraham, three promises, two completely fulfilled. And mm-hmm. the idea I think we're supposed to have as we're reading is that the creation of this nation is going to be the third, mm-hmm. right? So so what we have in this long, detailed list is is an exhaustive record of the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises. And I think also... To as I was reflecting on this this morning, I was thinking about I, again. I just I just get st- stuck in the mind of that Israelite that would read this book say five hundred years after it's written, and and see their family's name mm-hmm. and the the way that that would deeply connect you to a story. I mean, imagine if in if if there was a book of the Bible about Calvary. And members of the Henderson family, or the Schrock family, or the Kinsinger family, could find their names in the holy book mm-hmm. of our faith. Just how deeply meaningful and connected that would that would be. We Christians are not likely to find our last name, our family name, in a book of the Bible. Um, it happens, right? There are some, but first names, first certainly. names, often, yeah. <laughs> but um, one of the things that that is, I think comforting for me to know is that my name is written in a book, a record um, of Yahweh's and that that deeply connects me to him and the story that he's telling. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the book of life. It's not the book of Joshua. And that's the better book to be recorded in. in Sure. sure. I don't... I I don't think we should ever expect this to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent quite a bit of time looking at the different geographical pieces that are mentioned um, over the past few days, just wondering like what great significance there might be. Mm -hmm. And there's some neat nuggets, but Mm -hmm. the, I don't think that we are supposed to get some deeply informative, formational background here. I think it's just an exhaustive record of Yahweh keeping his promises.
0: Uh, So at the end of chapter 21, there's kind of a... It almost reads like a summary statement, uh, starting in verse 42 or 41. And the Lord gave to Israel the whole land that he had vowed to give to their fathers, and they took hold of it and dwelled in it. And the Lord granted them rest round about, as Uh all that he had vowed to their fathers, Mm. and no man of all their enemies could stand against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Nothing failed of all the good things that the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Everything came about. You know, this is this is what the book of Joshua is, quote unquote, about. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what it's affirming kind of in the big picture sense. And it's, I think there's a, te- I guess I maybe I just want you to, to speak into the tension a little bit. Because like, so it says this, and I'm not doubting it or I'm not trying to undermine it. But Joshua sitting right in front of judges, which will describe to us the ways in which they didn't take all the land. Well, even you know, the end of Joshua talks
1: about the need to continue taking the land. Right.
0: You know, and that rest. Certainly, they had rest for a season, mate. Perhaps, but then the wars continue. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think this is a str- this is a tension that every single person of faith has discovered at some point in their lives this tension between promise and reality mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> sure yeah.
0: and so maybe if you could just comment you know on and you can take it in whatever direction you want but just comment on that that uh, the tension there
1: the this is probably not where many of you are going but something I want to head off this is not a error the book of Joshua in the next chapters talks about how the need to continue to to conquer this land is is still present and so it's not as though an ancient reader would miss this juxtaposition uh, or tension um, there's something here I think that we're familiar with when we read the words of Jesus as he talks about the kingdom um, the kingdom has already come according to Jesus the kingdom is here and the kingdom is not yet here all of these are present in the New Testament in, the, in the, the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul, the kingdom has already arrived and the kingdom is still coming. Mm-hmm. In this way, they've already achieved it and they're still achieving it, right? And I think that there's something about how the people are now, they're in, right? They're all in the land. They're where they're supposed to be. Right. The major battles have been fought. Um, there are not gonna be any more Jerichos mm-hmm. um, in the the coming chapters. And those, I think, are, I think that's what's being talked about is the major warfare, um, whole Israel threatening battles are, are completed. And now what's left are these regional disputes where there are people living in the space that they're supposed to claim, uh, that they're supposed to drive out or destroy. And so I, I think that that's what's happening here is that Israel's in, they now just have to clean up the mess um and the major battles have been fought in the book of Joshua that all of the people were fighting all that's left are the the regional the regional disputes
0: and that's why i mean the the cross jordan tribes go home at mm-hmm. this point i mean they're returned back across the jordan and so that makes sense that's kind of like the major campaign is it's is done. Uh, over and they kind of shift to yeah mopping up i think is a flippant very flippant way to talk about what was going on but i mean that <laughs> you know kind of mm-hmm. clearing the corners <clears throat> and
1: each each tribe is made responsible for clearing out the peoples that are left in their land
0: yeah which we know from subsequent history that they most of them do not accomplish right. fully so like you said the end of joshua sort of redoes it's it, the, the the last chapter of joshua sort of feels like like joshua's version of deuteronomy mm-hmm. it really does <laughs> kind of an, an ending and that, and now that I'm thinking about it, which we don't need to talk more about this now than me just mentioning it, I'm like I wonder if that's sort of a motif that I've never noticed before—that the great leaders of the Bible kind of give a farewell address, sort of. Moses does it, Joshua does it, Samuel does it, David, David does, does it, it. Mm-hmm. Nehemiah kind of, Ezra makes everybody get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I mean, Jesus, you know, both yeah. on the night before he dies and then also at yeah. before his well, ascension. And,
1: and when we see that today. Presidents, when they're getting yeah. ready to leave yeah. office, give speeches. And, yeah, that's
0: just interesting. It'd be interesting to kind of like compare the, what do you call that? I'm sure a there's a word for speech. it, a farewell. Kind of compare those across the Bible and, hmm. and see if there's there's kind of recurring. Because obviously between Joshua and Moses there is, you know. Sure. He's, he, he talks a lot about choosing, just like Moses did, choose life rather than death, choose this day whom you will serve. In fact, Well, and I think it makes sense because Joshua, I mean, Joshua was a dedicated servant of the Lord, certainly, but I mean, he was just a dedicated protege of Moses. Yes. So, I mean, I think it makes total sense that here at the end, you know, of his uh, uh, career, you know, that he would want to basically reaffirm the same things. Absolutely. There's a specific thing I also wanted to ask you about. So in chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua says, And now fear the Lord and serve him in wholeness and truth and put away the gods that your forefathers served across the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And this has come up before, but, you know, it it just struck me to kind of open it up a little bit here. What does Joshua mean when he says fear the Lord?
1: The word fear is used in connection to what we're supposed to do to Yahweh um, more and more as the Bible narrative goes on, kind of culminating in the book of Proverbs. I think that's kind of where it's centralized and talked about the most is is the need to fear Yahweh. And one of the things that we need to be careful of thinking is this doesn't just mean be afraid of him. Mm -hmm. But it's not completely devoid of that either. The example I've heard most often is when a child thinks of their father, and let's imagine a healthy home, right, but one with rules and discipline. Mm-hmm. When when the child does what the child's supposed to do, everything is good. But many of us will have had experiences where when we misbehaved, our mothers said to us something along the lines of, just wait, wait until dad your father gets, gets home. home. Yep, and that had an effect, right? And it had an effect because we feared him. Yeah, we didn't fear him as a whole. We feared his his anger. We feared mm-hmm. the the consequences that mm-hmm. would come. In my home, my mom, my mom was a disciplinarian longer than she should have been, and I remember getting spanked by mom in like fourth and fifth grade thinking like man i'm getting off easy because uh but shortly thereafter she realized the futility of her her being the disciplinarian and went entirely into making lists and giving the list to dad when he came home and who buddy that was a whole different experience (laughs) um and so so i think that that's part of what this is is a respect Mm -hmm. um and so there's a, a faithfulness that's that's connected to this fear, a loyalty um, to see ourselves as belonging to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he has the right to tell us what to do
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what not to do. A, a worship, a call to worship here, like an awe of mm-hmm. the Lord, I think is present. Reverence. A reverence, a deep reverence. Yeah. And so when I did this, bef- when I preached a sermon on the fear of the Lord, I broke fear down into four pieces. Um, faithfulness. Uh, enslavement, meaning seeing ourselves as as servants of Yahweh, awe and respect. And the idea of fun. Well, put that on a poster. I used to love anagrams with my preaching. <laughs> I I avoid them now because I think they're overdone. But anyways. But I think that it's this big idea that we have a hard time finding a one-to-one word for. Mm-hmm. But I do think that picture, if you had a home like mine with a good, healthy father mm-hmm. that loved you and still knew the fear of your mother saying wait till he gets home I think that's the picture of the fear of the Lord
0: well they're like I think like an electrician should in some ways have a healthy fear of electricity absolutely you know that it's like we certainly we know well we well anyway we know how it works in terms of the systems we have you know they know how to fix things but they also know that you you cannot mess around with it mm-hmm. because the consequences are severe And in the case of electricity, unmerciful. Yeah. (laughs) Like electricity doesn't care if you didn't mean it. (laughs) Uh Electricity doesn't care if you feel bad, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, whereas Yahweh does. And so he's not unyielding, you know, in his consequences. (laughs) We see that throughout scripture. We see that in the book of Judges, you know, so it's not a hard and fast rule of like oh you did this so now I, you know but i mean there is that sense of like but he could yeah you know or and we talked about this before with like the capital punishments the death sentences and leviticus and things like this like did they always kill people who do probably not but i think that sometimes yes yeah. and i think that the it was always there like the penalty is is present that, that this is the the extremity to which this could go you know and so i think you see this in Joshua and we saw this in Deuteronomy as well like Moses saying look choose life and now here's two chapters on what it will be like for you to choose death mm-hmm. you know and and you, i and i think i mentioned this last week or the week before like when i read those now it's like there's a feeling of dread that comes over me not because i'm afraid that god is going to necessarily inflict any of those upon me you know right now but just the the possibility of it it's it's similar, and this might be taking us off the path, so I might cut this. But it's similar to like watching like a end of the world movie or like an apocalyptic mm-hmm. movie. Oh yeah, that same feeling. The feeling of dread. So like when Definitely. I watch that, yeah, and I've been watching zombie show lately, but like part of the experience of that for me is I it I actually walk away from that grateful of how well taken care of we actually are at this point in history (laughs) like our lives are good and there's a huge complex of complicated systems that have to all run basically not perfectly but I mean they all have to function for the lights to turn on for Mm -hmm. water to be in the taps for the internet to be connected to our phones for my uh, medications to be at the pharmacy like just all this stuff and for that to break down would be catastrophic for all of us and it could pretty easily actually right like our great-grandchildren might grow up in a very different world than we and that's been true the whole time like Mm -hmm. it's not just these new you know every generation of americans has has had the big boogeyman you know that oh this is gonna destroy everything and one day it might you know like i mean that might really happen and we'll get there because we've made dumb selfish choices (laughs) right it's like the choice of life and death still is is being set before us and anyway so i just i think that that all can be can be wrapped up or even like thinking about like storms you know it's like one tornado you know and I, and we've had families who lost their homes in the tornado and i'm not trying to diminish that experience by using it as an example but that same sort of thing of like we're just so small compared to the powers of the world you know so it's like should we have a healthy fear of tornadoes yes like we should not if the sirens go off, you should get in your basement, you know, because it might destroy your house. Yeah. Not because the tornado hates you, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. you know, and and again, God is not a blind force of nature. And so I think that it's not, you know, but just to, to to kind of ratchet that up to the creator himself who, I mean, you know, the Psalms talk about commands the winds and the whirlwinds and, and you know, and so it's just like, yeah, the, the, the reverence there of being in the presence of of friendly danger. Let's put it like that. Ooh, that being in the articulate. presence of friendly danger. <laughs> That's good. Friendly danger. Well, the, I mean, it's
1: the, the well known line from the Chronicles right. of the right? That's right.
0: right. Yeah. C.S. Lewis captured it, I think, perfectly. Say it, say it.
1: Well, so so Lucy is asking about Aslan, Aslan being the, the, lion. the lion that is the Jesus figure. And I think she's speaking to Mr. Beaver, or it might be, I'm not sure who she's speaking to. But she asks about Aslan, is he safe? Mm-hmm. And the, the animal responds almost with surprise at the question. He's a li- Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's exactly what C.S. Lewis was trying to get. A lower example would be, as you were talking, I kept thinking of Thanos in Infinity War. <laughs> you know, the Marvel movies with this uh, villain who, in that first movie, like, they just can't, everything, is is lining up to try the the humanity's best to stop him and he has that line i am inevitable you know and that that feeling of just there's nothing we can do
0: so one last kind of question about joshua before we i we i pivot to judges yeah joshua and jesus share a name that's the same name Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yahweh saves or yahweh is salvation and so how does the book of joshua shed light on the story of the gospel Uh, and vice versa. Like how do we taking what we know is coming will come with the Messiah. You know, how do we then come back and read Joshua? That's a, that's a potentially a big question, but maybe if you could just provide a couple of pointers or, or just bullet points there. Bullet points. Okay. (laughs) A couple of
1: thoughts there. The first is that we see Joshua having a fairly significant role in the leadership of Israel and, he never disobeys. There is no yep. disobedience story That's with true. Joshua. As a leader, every time he is told to do a thing, he does it faithfully. He does it the way he's been told to do it. Um, at no moment. It, you know, Moses has the disobedience moments. Mm-hmm. Before Joshua, every single of one of the patriarchs has moments where we look at and we right. see them disobey. Joshua is the first that is Absolutely, what he is supposed to be. Now, there are later leaders we don't see have these these flawed moments, but I think that's largely leading all the way up to Jesus because we don't have enough story about them to see those mm-hmm. moments. Joshua is a, a completely faithful leader as far as the story of Joshua goes. Now, that can be hard for some of us because what Joshua's role is <laughs> is a very distasteful one. Yeah. But what he's also doing is he is... Conquering and 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 building a kingdom, mm-hmm. he's bringing a kingdom. Um, yeah. God's people are are coming into that kingdom through the battles that Joshua is leading them into fighting and winning, and Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He is bringing a kingdom, and I think that that connection there, the the obedience of Joshua and the kingdom focus of his book the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises that are mm-hmm. is just so present in Joshua. I think those are what are supposed to be evoked with Jesus getting his same name. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know how common a name Yeshua was in the time of Jesus. And so if it, you know, if it's like John is today, it would not have had the same impact. Um, it may have been less common. I'm not sure. But for subsequent generations, as we read the story of Jesus, I think the calling to mind of Joshua and those themes particularly are what we are are supposed to evoke. There's more, but I think that those are the, the two big bullet points I would
0: give. Mm-hmm. And what about kind of the retrojection? Like if we started printing Old Testaments and this book was titled Jesus. <laughs> what about that? Well, just what would be the kind of how do we then... Reverse that and taking what we know of Jesus in the gospel and then reading Joshua. Sure. Well, so we, we see with
1: the Deuteronomic, 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 Deutero-dynamic? I don't know. <laughs> with the, uh, that there's a word here and I've read it so many times. I don't know that I've ever said it before. The, the Deuteronomy
0: style. The
1: Deuteronomy style of Joshua um, fits Jesus' teaching pretty yeah. clearly. Um, there is a narrow road,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: the, the narrow path language is present in Jesus. And it's, it's what Joshua is saying here at the end. There's, mm. there's teaching elements, the importance of faithfulness and obedience to Yahweh is absolutely part of Jesus's teaching. And we see it in Joshua. And also, I think we would see in, in that, um, our minds would be drawn to the, the kingdom peace, um, Jesus talks all the time about how he's bringing a kingdom. And I think if if Joshua was labeled Jesus, we would make that connection more clearly mm-hmm. and see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises being given here. Mm-hmm. And again, I really do think if we're reading, if we don't have what's, what's coming next, if we're not already familiar with the New Testament and the later prophets and everything that's going to happen, I do think we're supposed to read in Joshua with the formation of this nation the answer to the third Abrahamic promise that through Abraham's line all all nations would be blessed—that's supposed to be Israel—and mm-hmm. and so it's really like the first two have been been answered, and the third promise is coming. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that third promise, mm-hmm. and I think that we can see that connection there as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and we we'll, i don't want to say too much about this because uh, I do want to get to Judges. Uh, But it's when we get to the Gospels and Jesus's interaction with the, depending on which gospel you're reading, either she's referred to as the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman. I think there's a lot happening there. Mm -hmm. Like it is like a, the whole book of Joshua is sitting in the background of that interaction. And, but you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get there in like October. (laughs) Book of Judges. Hmm. uh, You mentioned The kind of the cycle, and uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Okay. Uh, And so specifically in chapter 2, starting in verse 16, it reads, And the Lord raised up judges and rescued them from their plunderers, and their judges, too, they did not heed, for they went whoring after other gods and bowed to them. They swerved quickly from the way in which their fathers had gone to heed the Lord's command." They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and rescued them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord felt regret for their groaning because of their oppressors and their harassers. And it happened, when the judge died, they went back and acted more ruinously than their fathers to go after other gods to serve them, to bow to them. They left off nothing of their actions and their stubborn way. Why? 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 Does this keep happening? Like yeah. why why can't they learn to be better?
1: It's a great question. So the section that you're talking about, um, I really think is supposed to be a thesis statement mm-hmm. that you can draw the rest of judges out of. and it it starts in chapter two, verse ten and goes through the first few verses of chapter three, but it's kind of a summary of the book of judges as a whole. And we see in this the continual failure of God's people. Disobedience leads to hard times. Hard times leads to, repentance. Repentance leads to deliverance. Deliverance leads to peace. Peace leads to disobedience. It happens again and again and again and again. The thing that Judges so clearly illustrates, hopefully that Judges makes us ponder, as we're thinking about these foolish, silly people with short memories, um, then we get up, go to the bathroom, and look in the mirror, and we Mm -hmm. think, oh,
0: I'm a silly person I, with a short memory.
1: <laughs> with a shorter memory. At least they, they last 40, 80 years sometimes. You know, we, I mean, Yahweh, Yahweh forgives us. We come out from consequences of our own foolish actions, resolute to never do the thing again. And I mean, it's often minutes, mm-hmm. hours, days when we're doing really well before we stumble into the exact same sin pattern again. Now, we've been we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. There is a difference in the covenant that we have here. And I think some part of us, whether we like to admit it or not, thinks that that means that there really aren't spiritual consequences Mm -hmm. for the wrongdoing that we do. But I imagine that's also what the people of Israel felt when they'd Mm -hmm. had peace for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Those other gods, the the ways that they were, were encouraged to worship them played on the exact same kinds of temptations that people today often suffer. Mm -hmm. Baal in particular, the the chief Canaanite deity, the way that that Baal's worshippers worshipped him primarily was they believed he sent rain when he got excited. And the way you excited Baal is you had sex with as many people as possible. He enjoyed that as a show and then gave the gift of rain. There's actually more grossness to that, but we won't go into it. Mm-hmm. But the you can understand how a group of people with neighbors who are frequently worshiping their God that way would be tempted to mm-hmm. fall into the exact same worship, even though their parents perhaps had told them, like, when we screwed up, this right. is what happened. Don't screw up like we screwed up. Stay away from those Baal worshipers. Right. But then, man... It looks appealing and a lot of the times you make decisions not based on wisdom and uh, a good evaluation of consequences. you make you make decisions based on the flesh. and it's it's one thing we learn here is that severe enough consequences can never fix the human condition. Mm-hmm. You cannot punish out the sin nature mm-hmm. And you could get a you can get a reprieve, right? Mm-hmm. You can get a you can get repentance. And commitment, and eventually you will get the same thing. The inevitability of that fall is something that we see. I mean, we see it in the garden, then we see it from God's people as they're at Mount Sinai. We see it over and over again through these stories. Eventually, no matter what's happening, even if Yahweh's walking in front of you, even if a mountain is on fire with the presence of Yahweh, still there's this inevitability to human sin. And it's just unavoidable Mm -hmm. and you cannot condition it out with consequences. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And and part of why I wanted to kind of draw that out is it's often been remarked that, you know, the Old Testament does not teach what we called in later Christian theology, kind of the original, original sin or, Mm -hmm. or just general human sinfulness, but it it really does. does. It just doesn't do it in the way that you're expecting it to, if you're expecting, some simple statement somewhere <laughs> it does it through story it does it through story and it does it through precisely through this this cyclical nature you know that i think that that uh, and again other things are at play here too that we've talked about they you know they compose things in rings often you know and that was often a style of kind of the oral storytelling you know that's mm-hmm. then preserved as they write it down but i think that that does preserve a theological point that you i mean that you i think very well described there of just that that that's just our lived experience of and even if even if you do manage and and often people do like they really do change and they they end some some pattern of of death in their lives but then it gets some some other way either something new gets in or you you then start to condemn other people who are struggling with what you used to struggle with. And now that now you're just working evil in a new way. (laughs) What the church
1: fathers call the principal vices. You never, you never overcome them all. If a person overcomes gluttony, that doesn't mean they're free from lust and anger or pride and and pride. I mean, pride
0: is kind of lurking at the end of that, of all of it, of that journey, you know? Um, all right. One last thing in, in Judges, the section of Judges that I want to talk about. Ooh. The uh, I'd like you to talk about how we see Jesus in the story of Yael. <laughs> so <laughs> I love this story
1: so much, and I'm not sure that I should, but I really do. Um, it, it delights me in that it's surprising over and over again Um, who, the, the woman who is often called JL, um, whose name would be Yael, literally, um, Yahweh is God is what her name means. It's a very, um, Yahweh centric name. Mm -hmm. But what's happening here is we have Deborah, who is a judge, the judge over Israel at the time. And this is the first judge we get quite a bit of story. We get a few, a, a little bit with, and then we have her song, of course, her incredible song that comes in chapter five. And what happens here is that um, there is a, a a leader of God's people that she goes to, to say, Hey, you need to go to battle. And he says, you know, I'm not, I'm not going without you. And she says, if that's the case, then, then people will know that, that the the enemy was defeated by a woman. And of course, as you're reading it, you're thinking that means Deborah, but Mm -hmm. actually it ends up being Yael. And Yael is this woman who she she sees Sisera uh, running. He's the, the enemy, enemy
0: commander. Commander.
1: Yeah. And he's fled because he's lost. And she's in a tent. And and he comes to her and asks to,
0: to be and so hidden. so this is just some regular neighborhood Israelite lady. I mean, I think like so. she's not yeah, yeah, there's she's no... not uh, quote unquote special.
1: Right. Um, and and he asks for water and she gives him milk. Uh-huh. Um, in other words, she shows extreme hospitality. She's very maternal towards him. Oh, you poor thing. Why don't you lay your head down and take a nap? And then as he's sleeping, she drives a tent peg through his temple into the ground. So, like, this is a strong woman. That is mm. a yes. that is a incredible feat of strength. Um, killing, winning the, the, the battle, essentially. Killing the commander of the enemies of the Lord. And... Is um is Barack shows up,
0: uh-huh.
1: um and is wondering where you know where he is. J- J- Yaël just says, "Hey, he's in the tent," and Barack goes in. I think expecting a fight, and then sees him. <laughs> and he went inside and
0: look, Cicero's fallen dead, <laughs> the peg in his temple.
1: Uh huh. So all right, what what connections to Jesus can we find here? Um, I think that one of the things that's really important about this is the name Yael, Mm -hmm. um, I think is more on the nose than maybe any other name um, in the Old Testament. It is just a pay attention to this character kind Mm -hmm. of name. Um, And we see here her ordinariness um, Mm -hmm. and her weakness and her vulnerability and through those things, victory over the the enemy of Yahweh's people is achieved. Mm -hmm. In fact, she she leans into. <laughs> I mean,
0: those. she literally crushes his head. She does. She crushes his head. She, she's a serpent serpent stomper. And so a crusher. the connection
1: to Genesis three fifteen comes up, where we are promised that there would be a descendant of the woman, and that he would crush the serpent's head, and that's that's what's happening here. Um, I don't think that we cannot see Jesus in this. It is mm-hmm. a weird place to see a messianic figure. Yeah. Um, it's a graphically violent mm-hmm. story. But we are not supposed to see her as a villain. I've seen that sometimes that she was too violent or she was she was deceitful, and so you know that was bad. I mean, the father and son deceive Satan in the right. New Testament.
0: Well, and again, we've talked often about redemptive redeem trickery. Yes,
1: redeemed trickery. <laughs> and it, it's
0: this. I mean, it's the same pattern again. A righteous woman uses redemptive trickery to defeat the enemy of God's people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this just it just happens so often. It does and over and over so again cool. in the
1: Bible. Yeah and so
0: yeah i love the story of yael and you know it's not that sister was probably dead before he even realized what it happened yes you know this is not a cruel death it is cruel (laughs) in the sense that she tricks him yeah
1: um to to speak loving maternal words
0: it's a brutal violent book so i mean it is what it is and it only gets worse but it does only get worse from here (laughs) do you imagine yael as a young woman or an old woman you know, so the way
1: that she's so maternal and uh-huh. the way that there's no shenanigans, uh-huh. I'm picturing an older an woman. An older lady, yeah.
0: I, I, me too. I'm just like, <laughs> there, there, dear. Lie uh-huh. down. Here's a blanket. Here's some milk. His sister's you know. probably
1: 30, and she's old enough to be maternal and towards And she him. goes
0: and does whatever the, the ancient equivalent of knitting is until uh-huh. she starts to hear him snore. <laughs> she's slow-
1: she's probably a widow actually <laughs> uh, It's my guess she's probably well a widow and person.
0: so this is a la- this is the last thing so is yael an israelite or is she a non-israelite person who are the kenites son of heber the kenite
1: so that i know that one theory there is that it's just another word for canaanite
0: because i have heard or i've read and i mean this is disputed uh-huh. but I, uh, just another interpretation is that it's cain that it's a linkage uh-huh. back to Cain. Well, so is Canaan. Yeah, which is fascinating to think about since, generally speaking, Cain is the cursed offspring. You know, I mean, Genesis 3.15 happens before Cain kills Abel, but it's just an interesting, uh, you know, that we generally think that it's the Abel or the uh, Seth, I guess, the righteous descendants, you know, it would just, just be interesting if if it did turn out that Yael was a, was being connected back to Cain, so here is a Canaanite woman who is named Yahweh as God. Mm-hmm. So, like, the story is more complicated than just Israelites good, Canaanites bad. Right.
1: Well, I mean, the picture we get, I think, is that she she probably appears to be friendly to Cicero. Like, mm-hmm. uh, she probably has an ethnicity that makes her yeah. appear to be well. Ally. And I think
0: it says that her people had peace with uh, uh-huh. who Cicero was fighting. The, she's an ally, or she's of an ally people.
1: Uh huh. But she is a follower of
0: Yahweh. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible.
1: Stay hungry, my friends.
0: Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Have you ever been around a deer? (laughs) I don't know what sound they make. Does anyone know what sound deer make? Because they run from you if you're close enough to hear them. That's true, but they scream. Have you ever been like in the woods and deer run away? Yeah, yeah, and they go ah as they run away. I don't think those were deer. <laughs> I think you scared off some children. Well, I was shooting at them, so oh. I don't know.